Hello, you're listening to the extended version of Book Shambles because you're a Patreon supporter and that makes you better than everyone else and you deserve treats. Thanks very much for the support. Here it is. Hello and welcome to Book Shambles. Producer Trent here as always. On today's episode, Robin is talking to the brilliant writer Jocelyn Nicole Johnson about her debut novella, My Monticello. But before we get to that, a couple of important things to tell you about. If you've not seen our announcement on social media this week, we have begun work on our first feature-length documentary film. And as a result of that exciting news, we are, for the first time, hiring. We're looking for a junior production assistant to work with us on this project. If you go to cosmicshambles.com slash jobs, you can find out all the information about the role and the salary and everything else. Uh, An ideal way for someone who's looking to get into the broadcast industry, maybe studying broadcasting or cameras or lighting or something at university. So if you'd like to work with us or know someone who might head to that URL and find out all the information and apply, we're taking applications until the 4th of July. Thanks as always to our Patreon supporters. It's uh, largely thanks to you that we're able to make the documentary that we are embarking on at the moment. Patreon.com slash bookshambles where you can go to sign up, get extended episodes, lots of other goodies as well. The latest archive interview from Cosmic Genome that has gone up is with Alex Horn. And also you'll be able to join us live online for some previews of Josie Long's new Edinburgh show, Reenchantment. All the information is on the Patreon site and cosmicshambles.com. And now on to today's episode, here is Robin and Jocelyn. There's something about the, the, the media that we have which are stoking something very, very... Uh, I mean, that's what I thought was... You know, I would have imagined reading My Monticello 25 years ago and seeing it as a very different kind of dystopian, possible dystopian vision to the one that I read when I read it now absolutely yeah we read in the time we're in and changes you know hopefully we'll read it in 25 years and it'll be different <laughs> better maybe I don't know yeah that, that's what it, it, it interests me well I'll tell you actually I'd, I'd love to start just by talking about um I, I've, I've been reading lots of stuff on your website and uh I I you know some some of the journalism and some of the some of the stories and please tell us how we are uh that was the first thing that i read can you tell me a little bit of the background of please tell us how we are oh absolutely so please tell us how we are is probably i think my most recently published story it's a story about uh a family that goes into vacation in mexico to this all-inclusive resort and it's in the form of you know, at the end of a holiday, you kind of fill out the forms, the online forms of saying, uh, you know, they ask, how was my room? How was your meals? And the mother, it's kind of this very surreal back and forth between this animated online forum and this mother about this um, vacation. And it kind of gets into, um, you know, the ocean, the red tide there, like what the environment is, the artificial kind of cheap forced cheer of, of this place and how, you know, 
the cost of their vacation, I think. And just the clash of two cultures, you know, the consumer and then the provider and how those two things are side by side. What did you think it was about? I well, I also, I enjoyed, I enjoyed the expression also, as well as the clash of the cultures, the kind of, the, the underlying ego that lies within this now perpetual how we doing how we doing how we doing that 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 as well that go and that's the ego on both sides as well the expectation the ego the presumptions and the belief of what you're presenting and that you know and I loved all that stuff I just thought it had the the, the number of layers in in a short story like that and the amount that you could take from it I, I, I just thought it was it was fantastic Oh, thank you. I, I, I did go on a vacation and all those <laughs> and all those things, you know, a lot of those things just occurred to me. You know, the story isn't about exactly what happened to me, but just that feeling I've traveled a lot. And, you know, as an adult going to that kind of place and how did I feel about it and how did, you know, how does it feel to bring yourself there and what does it mean? And just the complication of, you know, the world, <laughs> really. And before we get on to my Monticello, another, there's, there's a couple of, of, uh, well there's more than a couple but so essays in terms of which really give I think some background as well into my Monticello um and the first one was your your essay my vengeful fiction where you say my fiction is rife with vengeful stories scene after scene fueled by slight intimate or else second hand I wonder if you could you know just say how much you can find the the both the the the, the catharsis and also the desire to expose these things uh as well within the boundaries of fiction yeah, so I wrote, I will just say that I, um, for my whole career, I was a public school, elementary school art teacher. I taught like three-year-olds to maybe 11 or 12-year-olds, mostly for that eight, 20 years of teaching. And so my persona in the world, especially as a teacher, is one of like welcome and warmth. And so for me, you know, but I'm still noticing the world, you know, just as myself, as a full human being. So for me, fiction was a place where I kind of expressed grievance or or noted things or called out things um you know when people are like oh she's so nice and I don't think that's untrue I think we're many people and we have many experiences and we see many things and for me fiction is a place that feels like a safe place to explore um just response to the world and especially the hard parts about the world um the difficult parts about the world the, the parts where power is kind of um I think taking advantage. And so I think even as a child, I found like some old stories I wrote and I kind of had that to me, even as like a little kid. It's like just that desire to to call out things, even when there are things in myself, you know, it's not always about everyone else, but just noticing those things and trying to pinpoint them and speak to them or speak them in fiction. And who were you when you were growing up? Who were the first authors that, that for you, you started to feel an importance with them, that they stayed with you? Oh, my gosh. I've read all over the place. I read a lot of poppy stuff like um, and really like beloved children's literature like Judy Bloom. Um, Essie Hinton, for me, when I read it as a teenager, uh, she wrote like four novels as a 16. I think she started at like her first was published when she was like 17 or 18. And then through her young adulthood. And those were really uh, formative for me, especially the first one, The Outsiders, um, which is funny because I think all of my stories are kind of about some sort of outsider, some group outside of that has virtue that's unseen. You know, she was talking about rural white you know, greasers in the 50s, but the idea, you know, there's a way that 
identity identities can overlap and translated to me um, those ideas that this group has virtue and diversity. You know, they're not like this isn't that we all have that basically, that every group has that, that every identity has that. And so that was important to me. And then as I got older, you know, I read um, people like Toni Morrison. I read Alice Walker. I read um, writers like Richard Wright. Um, um, a lot of like uh, American writers that were talking about, you know, kind of the Black Southern experience. My parents grew up in South Carolina, and so that was accessible to me. And in Toni Morrison's case, you know, kind of the Midwest uh, experience. Um, and that was profound too. Poets like Nikki Giovanni, uh, who lives in Virginia here. Um, yeah, also just kind of all over the place. And then I also loved, uh, for some reason, I loved Crime and Punishment. Like I read that in high school, and I thought that was so fabulous. I don't know why I've really gotten into like all these Russian names and this idea of doing an obscene thing and keeping it secret and how it could eat at you. And I, <laughs> and I tried to read it. Uh, I need to read it a third time, but I read it again as an adult. And I just thought there's a lot of conversation in this book. Like There's these mm. just long conversations, like in the pub, you know, with two people talking and it was interesting to go back to it. Um, yeah. That's it. It's it. when you mentioned Toni Morrison, who also gets mentioned in 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 uh, my Monticello as well. I, ju I just thought it was really. We've had a thing in the UK where there was a, a you know the the way that the culture wars are being perpetually stoked uh, in a very tedious way, and it was a whole thing about the fact that uh, I think it was Stirling University. Jane Austen was taken off the English curriculum and replaced. I think it was with Toni Morrison's beloved. I can't remember which which one it was, and of course it wasn't. And she was described just as a, as a postmodernist American, or you know this. this this way that to try and stir up this idea that she was you know and, and and of course the university went no Jane Austen's still on the curriculum it's just <laughs> it's just we've we've also added some other authors and we've moved some of them around I, I mean that when we were talking just before we started recording you know that this the, the the pessimism I mean it must be as, as as you watch things like this getting getting played out and you think because uh, I, I find it amazing I remember this all going on in the 1980s a great deal I mean it was in the Reagan government it was in the Thatcher government these culture wars um and they're the same things they're about anything or it seems to me I just wondered in your perspective in the US you know how how do you feel that is is playing out where you know still if any black writer is 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 put on a curriculum that will probably be turned into a news story and they'll say something like Mark Twain's not being taught any or whatever it might be I find it deeply troubling but it is interesting being a little bit older um, my book came out when I turned 50 and I'm still 50 and having lived long enough to kind of see the revolution of something and see it be pulled out again and still see how successful it is, even though it literally is pulling out the same <laughs> argument that's been, in my opinion, proven to not be true. And it's, I think yeah, there's just certain um, buttons you can push, the vulnerabilities we have as humans, all of us, um, to stoke our fear, to kind of create this desire for safety by being in some sort of in-group um, to tell untruths that fit some sort of pre-existing fear we have, to create the sense of identity that has rules to it that we may not even believe as individuals. Honestly, I think people can really, really <laughs> negate their actual desires and beliefs if, if they feel they're going to be plucked from the group that is they find to be home, 
you know, I mean, they'll really just go with, with anything sometimes, but I think we have other instincts too. They're just harder to get at. You know, I think of this idea that, um, the same things that the same forces that cause us to kind of split apart and be divisive could pull us together. Like something like COVID could, there's like the potential and there are moments where people do come together against a common foe or whatever, an idea, something. And it's just like, what pushes it one way and the other? Um, I wish I knew. In fact, in my next project, that's what I'm thinking about. How could some of those forces that I think are so um, prevalent in politics and prevalent that are used to kind of pull us apart, how could that create something good or be used, be utilized to do things I think are important, like take care of our planet better and so forth. And not even just important, but essential. And <laughs> so how could how could that be? Yeah, I don't I don't know how it how I do see how it happens, but it's it's surprising to me that people that it happens again and again. And it mm. you know, almost like clockwork. <laughs> it's like push this button, get this response. And then I'd always find it disturbing when it's when people who were on the other side when they were young don't realise that they've just become like everyone else who's middle aged. They don't realise they've done that. So they would go, "We were it was all great when we we rebelled to just the right amount of progress. We got it exactly right. But now these young people are pushing it too far." And you go, "But that was the last. That's exactly you know that that if, if if you understand young people too much, then they're not doing their job. Their job is for you to go, "Hang on a minute. How does this work? Oh right, this is different. Good." Yeah, I I find that that's the there's a few people I know in their fifties uh, who I just go, oh man, if you could see if twenty two year old you on that march could see fifty three year old you, they would be very disappointed. Maybe it's a pendulum, right? Maybe there's this way in which it does go back and forth, and things go one way, and and then there's a correction the other too. I mean even not in such a horrible way, right? So when you're young, there's a way in which you have nothing to lose. And when you have things, you want to protect them. Um, but I do think that we're, we're all conservative in our country and liberal kind of being um, manipulated so that the powerful can keep power. You know, there's a way in which we have all these shared interests despite our differences um, of identities. And I think that some of the people, some of my cynical sides, uh, some of the pol many of the politicians who are most um, have the most vitriol and ha and and kind of push these buttons are doing it to divert us from recognizing that, so that a few people can still, you know, become incredibly rich and 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 take a shuttle to you know into space for fun uh, while the planet is, <laughs> you know really going to become unlivable and 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 it is ironically it pushes the pressure of you know immigrants people having to move and leave their country well if we took care of our space if we took care of our earth people wouldn't have to do that so much so it just all kind of feeds on one another you know it's really hmm. unfortunate yeah i find that very interesting the kind of uh private finance uh space missions because uh, I do quite a few kind of science shows and stuff like that. And and when I was touring Reese, because I'm a little bit sceptical about it all. Uh, and it's, I wondered when I started talking to quite sciencey audiences, whether they would say, shut up, we want to. But actually, they're also going, yeah, yeah, yeah. This whole idea that we're going to terraform Mars and it's and that's what we're going to do. There's going to be a planet B is just kind of, you know, it, it, it it's it's selling an old, you know, 1950s sci fi dream. Yeah, I think that um, I wonder what 
makes us think we would take better care of Mars than here. We have so much, like we're gonna rebuild a whole livable space and a space that is now unlivable when we, our planet is the only planet we know of that supports the kind of life that, that we know of. Why would we, how do we, you know, it's a, kind of like that idea of we're gonna create some machine that will clean the air and create oxygen. We're like, we have trees. <laughs> like we literally have the technology that would be so, you know, it's, it's an interesting, I think it's part of our, our human, what's wonderful and what's terrible about us, but it, it's interesting for us to think that then we would do it right. Then we would care for the resources we have. We literally can't do it here. So why would we do it there? And how would it not exacerbate all the, you know, all the, the um, inequity that we have here? Who would get to go or how would that be? How would that work? <laughs> Yeah, I, I love it. I find it all. Yeah. Anyway, so I could ba bang on about this for ages. So let's talk about my Monticello because this is, uh, I mean, it's such a, 19 days, 19 days in the house of Jefferson with some people who were indeed the the great great grandchildren of, of Jefferson and know that knowledge and and indeed one of the characters sleeps in 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 his bed. This is what was the genesis of this story? Where did it begin? Yeah, so Mama Cello is a real, sh I live in Charlottesville, Virginia, um, in the East Coast, kind of, and it started kind of with my town. So in 2017, we were the unwitting host of a Unite the Right rally, which was kind of a, a, a rally about the Confederate statues here in our town that were, there was discussion of removing. That was on the face, it was that, but really what it became was this um, coalition of militia people, white supremacist, and other, the Ku Klux Klan and other groups, traditionally uh, white power groups, coming to Charlottesville and kind of carrying Nazi banners and torches and machine guns along our downtown area and chanting horrible things <laughs> like into the ovens and Jews will not replace us and getting in you know, physical fights with counter protesters that were drawn to this event by, by them coming and a whole summer lead up to this event as well. Um, and then ending with um, a car, you know, a, a, one of their members driving a car into a crowd of people and killing a young white counter protester, Heather Heyer, as well as injuring a whole bunch of other people. And then the next day claiming a kind of victory, the, the, you know, the Unite the Right saying and blaming the death on, on, on the liberal or the counter protesters, people who didn't think they should be there. Um, so it was a pretty traumatic event. I was teaching public school at the time. Um, I had, my son was fairly young, nine or 10. And, uh, you know, I had to, had to do a lot of thinking about what, what it meant, not only that, this group chose to come and present themselves that way, but also um, our town just really struggled to respond. Uh, I think the politicians did, individuals did, I did. Should I go there? Should I counter protest? Should I stay home? What do you do when someone, you know, evokes uh, things that your parents fought against and, you know, really built their lives in, in opposition to, you know, my parents were so aspirational, they're like, kind of the work hard, move up and bring others with you, <laughs> pay your taxes, do good, be nice to your neighbors, you know, welcome everyone, protect your group, protect your family. And so I just really struggled with it. And what ended up happening was I spent about a year 
um, thinking about it. And then I had to write a piece for The Guardian. I was asked to write a piece for The Guardian about August 12th on the anniversary. And as I was researching that piece, I kind of um, ended up going to all these talks. And I went to about the history of Black people in Charlottesville. And I went to one talk where a descendant of Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings stood up in the audience at the end and was introduced. And I saw her like around town and I thought, huh, how does this moment of white supremacy and violent um, divisiveness and nativism connect in the present moment, connect to the past? How does it connect to Thomas Jefferson, this founding father? How does it connect to Monticello, this um, historic plantation home of Thomas Jefferson that's right outside of Charlottesville where uh, you know, enslaved people live where Thomas Jefferson and his family lived, where dignitaries came, you know, what is the connection between these things? And I think that seeing that real descendant of Thomas Jefferson and this enslaved woman he had children with, Sally Hemings, um, this black descendant of this founding father just kind of connected the two for me. And that's how I kind of came to writing about Denasia Love, this imagined young local girl who's a black descendant of Thomas Jefferson and who also um, attends the University of Virginia, which is here, which is Thomas Jefferson's uh, university. He founded the university as well. And so that's how they all came together. No, I, I find in, in terms of when you were writing it, the importance of also within it having not, not a polemic, but that it it does have things. I, I forget, is, is the book that's taken from the shelf notes from Virginia? I've, I've, I've forgotten the, yeah. Um, and, you know, reading about that, that, here we have real history and here we have the real writing. And, and, you know, were you always aware as you were writing this that you wanted to also have this as a springboard or a bridge for people to go further in terms of understanding this history? I, yes and no. I mean, I think for me, the novella was me grappling with this dramatic event of August 12th. Like, I didn't know how to respond to it. And so I responded by writing <laughs> writing this novel, the slim novel. But also I did really think it was important that um, the historical, you know, the physicality of the house and the history that I included was factual. So I read Thomas Jefferson's, you know, one book, Notes on the State of Virginia, and kind of used some information from, from him, from his own point of view, from his idea of Virginia, and, and in contrast to my narrator's view of Virginia, and you know, weighing my own from now and how it looks reading that book now. And then I also wanted to think of history as something intimate. I think it's really hard. I'm not really a, a history buff. I don't like read a lot of nonfiction history, but I think of like family stories and how, you know, as you get older, and even when you're a kid, the story your family tells about itself and about you absolutely matters and it shapes you. And when we think about history, that's just a bigger version of that story. Um, how it's told, not only what happened, but also how it's framed and told affects how you see yourself and how you go forward. And so I wanted this to be uh, a window into how another character, you know, the, the story of, Mo of Monticello has been, what a great man um, Thomas Jefferson was, how clever he was, how smart he was, which is all true. He really was smart. He's really, he said some very profound things. He was very influential then and now, but there are other stories that can buffet that and that can rise around that. So I just wanted to shift and show another version into Monticello, which is of, you know, the more than 600 
Black enslaved people who lived there, including Thomas Jefferson's own children. And what would the story look like from their point of view as well? Or what, what does that place mean to them? You know, and so I thought that was an addition to the story, another window into the story, another way to understand Thomas Jefferson, who is a human full of contradiction, as all of us are. And I think that um, that hopefully makes people think about complicating the story, creating humanity, even in the founding fathers, taking the myth and then putting it, trying to take the myth of America and make it into like a working thing that works for, for, for more people. Do you think, do we have, I, I certainly, I think I see it in England, I think I see it in the US as well, which is the people's, the way that they use the myths to create their identity makes it very, very difficult to actually show historical truth and and show that humanity, which is, you know, there are, whether it's the founding fathers, whether it's Winston Churchill in World War II, whatever it might be, these people become part of someone's identity. And if once they've decided that that form of their patriotism is their identity, then anything which shows that humanity, that multitude of, of what someone can be is seen as, 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 as an act of aggression. I think that can be really hard for people. I don't know. I think people can also be moved and changed in a moment by events, um, by stories. I think of, you know, in our country, we have something like QAnon, which is kind of, do you all have, do you know that, that yeah, phenomenon? Yeah. yeah. And I think, well, how could that work for people? How could this, this story be so compelling for a good number of people, you know? So that tells me that a story can kind of come and, and, and work for people. It's like fitting some needs. So yes, I do think that once you, there are people who decide, but I think there are a lot of people in the middle or a lot of people who don't take, you know, those founding myths so seriously and, and, and have space for sway. And then I think of all the young people, there are people who are hungry to kind of destroy those stories. I'm, you know, I'm a moderate person in a lot of ways. I'm really strongly believe certain things that are not in the mainstream, but I think I'm very understanding of kind of the human condition and how we are and why we want to cling to things in the past. And I do too, and I want to be comfortable, but I also, I want the world to work and I recognize that I have to be willing to change. And I think there are a lot of people who could be like that if they could see a vision that worked and if they could see, if they thought it was possible and if they saw people they saw in the world that it was possible. It's hard to want something when it feels impossible. It feels, you know, it feels insurmountable. You don't know the path forward. You don't know how to even take a first step towards that thing. And so I'm hopeful that maybe something we haven't seen yet can help us to do that. You know, I mean, I am hopeful. Not, I'm not hopeful as in, I think that's gonna happen. I'm hopeful in that I think it's possible. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I think we can change. Yeah. And for us in our country, there's a lot of fighting about what to teach kids. And what I do know as a, as a longtime public school teacher is that children, are, they aren't born with those myths. And what we tell them early and first is so important. And that is why there's such a fierce resistance to the idea of baking into our story, the idea of um, equity. I mean, there's literally... <laughs> a huge resistance to that because it could work. Do you know what I mean? Because it does sway people. People aren't afraid of teaching about, um, you know, slavery because they think that it will hurt 
white children's feelings or black children's feelings. They're afraid of teaching about it in, a, in this different way because they're afraid it will compel children to want justice for their, their classmates that are, are black and brown as well as for themselves. I think they're afraid of it because it, it could work, not because they think it will hurt feelings. Mm. That's it. Remind me a bit of um, Howard Zinn, you know, the historian Howard Zinn with his, you know, if the people actually knew what had been done in their name, they would be appalled. The people's um, history kind of, is that, yeah. you seen the people's history? Yeah, I think I read that like in high school. And for me, yeah, that was formative. Also, we have to think it's not just these very loud conservative people who, um, they're not the only voice, you know, the loudest voice is not always the biggest voice or the only voice. And while I think that the conservative movement moves a lot of people, those people were saying much more moderate things, you know, 10 years ago. So it's not like, I, I think sometimes it's hard to, to not take the most loud, the loudest, most extreme voices and, and mistake that for the only voices there are. I think there are a lot of people who would be compelled at, at a different vision. It's just, not really um there's not like a focal point for that at this moment do you think i mean what are the what do you think in in terms of the methods of getting these other stories through i mean what i always you know i i, I love so many of the authors and, and and i think you know you do this is, is is that thing which allows you to go into the minds of so many different people it allows you to to walk in their shoes and to me that's the greatest one of the greatest things about great literature is you leave it with a new understanding. You leave it with a new understanding of people, sometimes of people's hurt, sometimes of people's ambition, whatever it might be of, of, of the psychology that's made them. And I think that's such an, you know, getting those stories out there when sometimes, as you said, I, I think a lot of those very angry voices, those very angry right-wing voices, unfortunately, a lot of the media are owned by those voices. So they are hugely amplified, hugely overrepresented. And then people who may well actually ultimately underneath be far more empathetic and gentle they will get carried along against you know somewhere in there is a better judgment yeah i think that can be true i think that we do have some not only amplifiers of the angriest voices but i think kind of cultivators of anger and of the problems again because it serves power because it it distracts us from what's common between us that would allow us to make changes that would benefit more people, um, both black, white, brown, all the people. <laughs> and so I'm not saying there aren't real issues of you know um, struggle between groups of people. I'm just saying there's other issues that are bigger than that, that we are being distracted from, from toward which we could come together in a lot of the differences that we have. Um, yeah, I don't know what the best venues are. I certainly, hope and books and stories, movies, uh, social media, which is a terrible, um, a terribly easily to manipulate kind of space, but it's a space that does frame and bring to our attention and point us towards, towards things in mass that, but certainly books, I mean, novels, stories, TV, it really can put you in the space of others. And I think it can be really, and with books in particular, the interior, the interior space of others, like what's in people's minds, what's in their thoughts. It can give you nuanced character. I mean, when I think of literature, I think of characters that are 
feel human, that feel nuanced, that are full of contradiction, that are not, you know, just an idea writ large, but just feel like they have physicality, that they have weight, that they have um, things we can identify in ourselves and recognize through reading them. So I hope people, you know, can still find stories and, and, and are moved by them, not just to entertain themselves, but also to just kind of form themselves, right? To see how to be and to see how to respond and to communicate with one another. There's so many beautiful phrases in the book as well. There's the, 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 the moment where touching something in, in, in a cabinet in Jefferson's house and on that point of contact, you say, touching it, I felt a low-level currency, some sense of conduction. And that sense almost like a, the block universe, time piled, you know, a palimpsest of time. I thought that, that again, that connection back to something, which then the current still runs through us. Yeah, so one of the funnest things about the book has got a lot of darkness to it, but there was a lot of light and fun in it, in, just in the sense of writing about my town, right? So this group takes off in this little bus and they're kind of driving up and it's like this very dark haunted tour of Charlottesville. <laughs> so all my neighbors here in town are like, oh, I recognize Brown's chicken and I, you know, I've gone up to the orchard and I've gone past the... Uh, the cat the taverns and then Monticello too you know in our town I'm sure there are many corollaries all over the world but we have um, Monticello someplace people go for school trips if like a relative comes into town you go over to Monticello you take them up to Monticello perhaps you know it's this kind of touch base and so it was really um, I really wanted to write the physical space to feel like something you're looking at. Like when you, you know, it's a museum of a house, there's a gift shop down below, there's a little theater, there's a, uh, like a cafe you can go to. And I wanted it, you to be, feel like you're walking on the crunchy gravel up to the house that you, you know, were looking out over the garden and you could feel how hot it was. And you, you know, all the things that you would feel if you visited. And one of my one thing I'm really happy about is Monticello actually um, sells the book and I had an event there and they, you know, a lot of people read it that work there and they were like, no, you got all the spaces really right. And you were, you know, the details of it really feel genuine. And so that I'm super proud of that because it's a, you know, it's hard to do that. Mm, <laughs> I'm not no, I think it was brilliantly. And it's, uh, there's also the, the, the incredibly evocative phrase that you have early on where you just say the body remembers. Yeah, I was thinking about trauma and also about, um, you know, there's a way in which even if you don't keep a trauma in mind, you kind of, um, there's a book called The Body, I think it's called The Body Keeps Score, which I haven't read, but the idea of it, like your body knows, your body remembers these things, even if your mind is inattentive to them. And um, I also thought of it like the body remembers not just the trauma, but also just you're connected. Your body is connected to, you know, your ancestors and to, to your parents, to your grandparents and so forth. And there's this way in which that's just a physical fact and you bring it with you, whether you have a, a deep awareness of, of it or not. And like through that, you're kind of connected to all these other things, to their experiences and and to other people's experience, because we're all, you know, we all come from commonality. There's this way in which we're connected. And so I wanted that to echo through the book uh, with this character, Danasia Love, as she's having a hard time trying to figure it out, trying to figure out what to do, struggling with all the things she's struggling with and coming to terms with 
what is her place in Monticello and how, how are they going to respond to this, to these, this violent white militia uh, that's down burning up the town and possibly coming closer to them. And, and did the, did the book come from, I, I read your piece, how to explain to your son why white supremacists are marching on your town. Was that, was that the first time that you, you, you started in, in terms of in writing, ad addressing what would eventually become this book? I don't, I think that that was a step toward thinking about it, right? So I said, this thing happened, this horrible thing, and I didn't know what to do with it. And so um, Guernica Magazine, I, I published a short story with them called Control Negro. And they asked me, do you, you know, we know you're in Charlottesville, are you okay? <laughs> would you like to write something about this? And I thought, oh, I would not like to write something about it, but I probably should, and I probably could. And so I wrote, you know, that piece is, unlike the Guardian piece is really personal. It was literally about the sensation and feel kind of like, you know, now that I think about it, kind of like Denasia Love, the sensation of how it felt that day, how it sounded. You know, I think if you were living in the States at the time, it was really shocking. Uh, August 12th, 2017, that was five years before the storming of the Capitol. It was kind of like a preview of how things would go, but it was one of those really early and to see, you know, literally men with men and women but mostly men with machine guns walk through a downtown area and fight you know it just was very very startling different than what we had seen before um, in a small town of maybe forty-five thousand people but in this space that just it just felt so jarring and out of place and um so I probably was in that piece that probably does have I'll have to go back and relook at it but and if you, I think that piece might be in, it's in second person. So it's, it says, you do this, you do that. You, you go and pick up your son and you do that. And I probably have a tendency to, to do that. And, and, and in the novella, it's in, Danae's just telling us the story, but there's this way in which she's putting you in, in all those spaces that she's really putting you in her, the sensations of, in her body of, of fear, of worry, of hope, of, love of you know all the things that she's feeling uh, so yeah I think it is I think I didn't realize it but I was gathering the ideas that would eventually you know become part of the novella well it did say I, I was thinking at the end of it that that as you were mentioning before rather than optimistic you're possibilistic that this is you know the possibility just when you end it you tell them that there are so many other things to discover in the world in people so much of it beautiful you lift the shield and pass it to your son even though its protection is a kind of wound too i just thought that was uh tremendously beautiful this is uh thank you so much for joining us because it's uh it's 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 a it's a, it's a wonderful novel and uh and as you said and you are you you just you're walking through it you see so much and you get get the, again the very visceral experiences i i, I was just going to ask who at the moment do you find the the most inspiring people to read oh my gosh i'm it's funny like reading i'm a slow reader and being in book mode has slowed me down for a while but i've kind of come back full force and i'm reading like all these things at once so um and i don't know if they're the most inspiring people to read there's so many great books out there i think the older i get the more i just feel like i wish i could just consume like all the things i'm you know there's no way to catch up there's no way i'm ever going to get to all the books but i'm just kind of going from thing to thing of what feels right for me so I just read a book I really liked called The Wrong End of the Telescope. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's It's been highly acclaimed. It's a, another Virginia 
well, a Virginia writer by way of, oh gosh, where is he from? By way of Middle Eastern country, I can't remember exactly where right now, perhaps Turkey, but um, Rabia Almadine, I don't know if you've heard of him, but it's a story about uh, refugees again. So it's a story about refugees coming onto the island of Lesbos from, from Syria to Greece. And, you know, it's a story of people going to help, but then just kind of the comedy of people helping, right? Because all these students go to help and they're taking selfies with like migrants coming over. But not just, but not to mock them, but just to show how we remain human in all these moments, right? These moments of what we want to do for one another. And then also like taking the trope of, you know, this refu these refugees and, and making them more complicated, right? creating a humanity, creating a relationship, and then told through the lens of queer and like a trans doctor and queer people. And so there's all these layers that are bringing to the story that we think we know about people washing up on shore and what that means and what they need from the world and really like challenging us with a lot of humor, a lot of levity and a lot of heartbreak all kind of smushed together. So I think stories like that are interesting to me right now. Um, I love Octavia Butler, who is a long-standing, um, I don't even know, shapeshifter of a writer, American writer, Black American woman writer who writes kind of in the genre of, I don't know, speculative fiction, but uses, I like writers who use a form unexpectedly to get at truth. So if you can take something um, that seems outlandish, but write about it in such a either that makes me think about what's real in front of me, which I think Octavia Butler does, or, or use it to make me see, it feels real in the story. Like I think of a story like Clara and the Sun. Have you, have you read? Yeah, you yeah, read yeah. yeah. Yeah, like it's taking something that isn't in the world, but placing it so like in the world in such a real way that we don't see it as, oh, this is cool that we had this, but it makes us think, well, what do we have and how do we feel about it? And what does it mean to be human? And, you know, in relation to this AI and what, what do we care about and how does all this work and what does faith really mean and so forth. So I really like writers that play around with things like um, that. One writer I absolutely, I don't know if there's a collection of short stories called Friday Black by Nana Kwame Ajay Brenya, who was a new writer that was his debut. And it's been translated into a bazillion languages all over the world. Uh, and he has a new novel coming out, which I'm really excited about. But again, a writer who takes, who's talking about grief and consumerism and race relations and racial anxieties, but does it through stories that involve zombie-like apocalypses and these, I just, taking it, but in a way that doesn't feel, I mean, there's a humor, but there's also like a truth, like there's just a very humanness in it as well. And I, I like, I don't know, surprise me. I like those kind of things. I think those are fun. And yeah, yeah, your book is amazing as well. And it's out, I think it's out, it's out, it is out now in the UK. I, I'm pretty certain. Yes. Um, it is. And uh, so I highly recommend it. Um, thank you, Justin, so much for, for joining us. And uh, I look forward to. Have you, you said you started the next one? Have you? I have. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm just kind of diving in and getting really excited about it. So. Brilliant. Thank you very much. I look forward to that. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much for listening. Hope you enjoyed the show. Rate, like, review on Apple Podcasts five stars, if you please. Support us on Patreon. Patreon.com/slash/bookshambles and. 
a reminder as well that we are hiring for a junior production and camera assistant. Cosmicshambles.com slash jobs is where you can go to find out about that. Back next week with another new episode. Until then, take care, stay safe, wear a mask on public transport and in the shops and stuff, and bye for now. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.